Welcome to the Wildwoods Nation podcast with myself, Lawrence Waller, and my colleague, Ross Corbett. In episode five, and the concluding part of our conversation with British military historian, Dr. Peter Caddick-Adams, we'll be looking at the siege of Bastogne, conditions inside for the defenders and civilians alike, logistics and resupply, the use of air power during the campaign, the King Tiger Tank, Germany's use of special commando forces, friendly fire incidences, and also the British role and contribution during the Battle of the Bulge. unfold for the men trapped inside the besieged town of Bastogne and why did the Germans think they'd be so ready to, to surrender to them? Bastogne almost from the beginning is held by a hodgepodge of whatever units there are in place. Once the corps headquarters has gone and that's that's a very very proper decision um, you are left because this is a root centre it need, needs to be defended uh, by all sorts of ragtags of um, plenty of people coming back from the 28th Division who've been uh, further forward. Um, uh, you've got uh, all sorts of different uh, units and organisations who are simply collected uh, uh, either by military police, by senior officers, uh, or who, for their own reasons, decide to sort of stay and fight. Um, and that means command and control is quite difficult. Um, so gradually, a group of individuals, and, and the bulk of them are 101st Airborne Division, uh, collect in and around Bastogne. After a while, it becomes very easy to focus on defence once you realise you're surrounded. Um, neither side really know what's going on. Um, the Americans don't realise they're surrounded almost until the Germans tell them they are. The Germans have no idea who's in Bastogne until they bump around the villages which are which eventually form part of the perimeter and find they can't get in th- across any of the fields or down any of the roads and by that time they conclude um, that the americans have got an all-round um, defense of bastogne and what is really key here is that the americans have managed to acquire all sorts of different artillery units which are in bastogne uh, and this is why mcauliffe plays such an important role because by sheer good fortune He's the artillery commander of the 101st Division. So he knows how to use the guns, and there are quite a lot of guns which have ended up in Bastogne. So instead of parceling them around the perimeter piecemeal, he concentrates them in the middle, and every time the Germans try and break in at one place in the perimeter, he directs the mass fire of the defending guns and breaks up any German attack. Now, had they tried to attack all around simultaneously, uh, the Americans would have been severely pushed. But the Germans don't do that. It's just one major attack, which is then defeated by artillery, uh, and then they launch another attack from somewhere else. And it's McAuliffe who is really instrumental and key in organising the artillery, because that's a, a role and a, for, a function that he really understands very well. So when the Americans call for air support, and essentially that's logistics drops of equipment and food and so on into the Bastogne perimeter. The first and most important thing is artillery ammunition because they're using it up in huge quantities. 
And that's the key to the defence of Bastogne, and that's really why the Germans can never get in. What were conditions like during the Siege of Bastogne for those trapped inside the perimeter, and how did both civilian and defenders learn to cope with life for this period? What we have to remember about Bastogne is there are as many civilians trapped in the town as there are military people, and we tend to just focus on those in uniform, but you've got all the Belgian civilians. Now, in some way, that placed the advantage of the Americans um, because the civilians will bring out all their spare supplies of food uh, and will go a long way towards feeding their defending garrison. Um, so there's a, a great synergy, um, and this is because the, the, the guy who effectively becomes the mayor of Bastogne organises the civilian uh, population uh, almost along military lines. Um, so they help each other to, to a great deal. But that means the civilians are in the front line, um, so they're going to take the same sort of casualties that the, the military defenders will. Uh, and so the suffering of the civilians uh, is absolutely appalling. Uh, because all the defenders are under shell fire all day, um, the Germans are flying overhead by night and dropping bombs, uh, and so nowhere is really safe. The older buildings become uh, the, the sort of hospitals, uh, and uh, a lot of the uh, Belgian civilians help um, the medics in, in tending the wounded, uh, and particularly there are, there are two nurses who play a, a sort of key role in that. Um, but bombs are indiscriminate, especially if they're dropped at night. So you find a lot of the old churches that are, are hospitals are themselves bombed. Uh, so there's a huge casualty rate amongst the medical staff uh, and the wounded who eventually suffer and, and, and uh, are killed in the bombing raids if they're not even dying of their, their wounds. Add to that, you've got food shortages, uh, shortages of water, uh, and crucially, shortages of medical um, supplies and equipment as well. Um, so part of the, the feature of the siege is that the Americans are not only parachuting equipment in uh, a, a sort of um, logistics reinforcements, eventually there there's, there's enough room in the perimeter uh, for gliders to land bearing field surgical units. So the first replacement surgeons who come in uh, to take some of the load of um, medical treatment uh, are people who've come in by glider. Um, and that's no mean feat, considering you've got to fly in very low over the German attackers all around Bastogne uh, and then just sort of fly into the perimeter. It, it's significant that as Bastogne is relieved just after Boxing Day, um, the first convoy out that's escorted once the roads have been opened it is a medical convoy of just over 100 ambulances. We've obviously focused a lot on Bastogne, um, but it wasn't the only important road junction town in this region, was it, though? Bastogne gets, if you like, an unfair share of attention. The second most important uh, road and route hub in the Ardennes is the town of St Viet, or St Vith, uh, a little further north. Um, and in fact, it falls to the Germans. But the defenders make the attackers pay such a high price, and the Germans take almost a week to capture it, that that slows them down so crucially that that removes any chance of a German success in the sort of northern sector of the bulge. So the defence of St. Viet uh, is crucial to the eventual American success although the town itself falls. Uh, and that's no reflection on the defenders at all. That is a very 
cunning and clever defensive manoeuvre and it forces the Germans to really pay for that. Um, but preceding that, in front of the town of St Vithys is uh, a, an American division up on the heights who unfortunately in the first couple of days are surrounded and two-thirds of the, the, uh, the infantry in the division uh, are captured. Uh, and this is where you get all the photographs of long lines of American troops being disarmed and being marched back into captivity in, uh, in, in Germany. So that whole sector brings uncomfortable memories uh, and associations for the Americans. Uh, a, uh, a newly arrived division that loses a lot of its combat power very early on uh, and then a town that falls. But in fact both play into our hands. Um, uh, the, um, the Germans take a lot of time and attention in, uh, in their attacks on the high ground uh, and they haven't really gained anything by taking a lot of American prisoners. That will require a lot of resources to look after them uh, and take them further back into Germany. Uh, and the town of St Vith becomes a hollow, a pyrrhic victory. It's not worth the price they pay for it. Uh, and the crucial price is not in terms of lives, it's in terms of time. Uh, and the Germans have sacrificed time that they can ill afford to spend on capturing a, a, a vital route centre. So the battle for St Vith is as important as Bastogne. As well as the 101st Airborne Division, there were three other Allied Airborne formations deployed to help in the Ardennes. What were their experiences and roles during this campaign? So if we think of the Airborne Divisions, and there are three American Airborne Divisions and one British that play a role in the bulge. And we know a lot about the 101st, we know about the 82nd, which is deployed a bit further north, uh, and certainly plays a sort of crucial role towards the end of the route that Piper takes, the, the, the German tank attack. Um, the 17th Airborne Division is actually the third division of the American Airborne Corps. Now, it's been working up uh, in England training, wasn't deemed to be ready for Market Garden, uh, was about to be sent to uh, uh, continental Europe, uh, and the poor weather that heralds the beginning of the Battle of the Bulge prevents it from being flown out um, to play any significant role in the, in the early days of the battle. Eisenhower has ordered them to be deployed at the same time as the 101st and 82nd. They can't get into combat because the weather shuts them off. So they arrive late, um, and that, that's through no fault of their own, and they then play a significant role in the subsequent blocking and counter-offensive in the Ardennes. Um, but this is their first battle, unlike the 101st and 82nd, who've been around for much longer. Um, the British 6th Airborne Division are already on the ground. They're part of 30 Corps, uh, and 30 Corps is uh, mobilised for battle as soon as we understand that the Ardennes attack is underway. Um, and initially they deploy to the far side of the River Meuse to act as a, a, a backstop. In cricketing terms, they are the wicketkeeper. Uh, if the Germans ever get as far as the River Meuse or over it. Uh, and then once we can start to push the Germans back, they uh, and the rest of uh, 30 Corps cross the river um, and pretty much they're the first combat unit in action against German ground troops. Despite at times the awful weather over the Ardennes battlefields, the use of air power on both sides was considerable, with the German launching Operation Boldenblatt. What sort of role and impact did all this have on the outcome of the battle? 
Now, when we think about the Battle of the Bulge, we focus very uniquely for a Second World War battle on a ground campaign. And we don't think of aircraft playing much of a role in it. And yet air power is absolutely crucial to the outcome of, of the battle. And yet both sides have a role to play. The Germans think of preempting the Ardennes battle with a huge airborne strike against every Allied airfield. Uh, and if you can destroy all the aircraft on the ground, then they can't do anything in, in the subsequent battle. Um, partly because the weather that's going to allow the ground forces to advance is obviously going to stop the German air force from playing a role. So that massive strike gets put off and eventually doesn't happen until the 1st of January, by which time it's ludicrous. Um, if the whole reason for attacking all the, the Allied um, air forces is to proceed an attack, then why on earth do it much later on when the attack is sort of well underway? Um, what the Germans do is they attack on the 1st of January when they hope all the aircrew will be completely sodden and drunk after a, a good evening's carousing, seeing the new year in. Um, for a start, they're not. Um, uh, for a start, this is the final throw of the German Air Force, so a lot of the uh, pilots in the skies are poorly trained. And because of this mania of secrecy, the Germans haven't told all their anti-aircraft guns that this is underway. So the Germans lose more casualties from their own anti-aircraft guns flying to the attack and away from it than they do attacking the Allied aircraft lined up on their airfields. Bodenplatt is fundamentally flawed. If you want to destroy the Allied Air Force, kill the pilots in their rooms, in their accommodation. Don't go for lines of planes lined up along the runways. Why? Because the Allies have so many resources, so many spare planes in the United Kingdom, they can replace every single plane destroyed in Operation Bodenplatt within the week and do. If you kill the Allied pilots or wound them in their messes, in their accommodation, you can't replace those nearly so readily. So they go for the easy target. Uh, the ability to make a serious impact on the Allied air forces is there, and it's killing or wounded the air, air crew. But they don't do that. They go for the easy target, and so it, it's fundamentally miscalculated, and it's ill-timed. It needs to be before the attack and not, not, not afterwards. If we look at Allied air power, it is crucial to the outcome of the Ardennes. Um, it can't fly for the first few days, and we may lay some blame at Allied reconnaissance aircraft not picking up any warning signs, but if the Germans are hiding from them, then perhaps we can't blame them very much. But once the sky is clear, and you are inevitably going to get lovely days when the skies are clear, the sun is out, the snow is crisp, we all know those sort of winter days, which are superb for flying, and dark coloured German tanks are going to show up enormously well against a background of white and snow. Uh, and so they're going to stick out as, as perfect targets, and, and that's the result. So the Allies are always going to be able to deploy air power over the Ardennes sooner or later. They've got plenty of it. And sooner or later, those German units, tanks, guns, whatever it is, are going to be caught on the ground and bounced by Allied air power, which is exactly what happens. And the Germans have really got no defence against that. A few anti-aircraft guns aren't going to make any difference. Uh, and so air power is always going to be crucial, especially when two factors come together, which is one, 
The skies are good for the Allies, and two, the Germans have run out of fuel. So they can't even run away and save their vehicles when the Allies are attacking them. And that was always going to happen. Even if the whole of December and January was miserable weather, and it allowed the Germans to get all the way to Antwerp, that was still going to happen to them with long drawn out logistics uh, convoys snaking through the Belgian countryside to get to, to, to the port. So Allied air power is always going to play the decisive role. Um, and that was always going to be in the Allies' favour. Did the Germans ever attempt anything similar to resupply cut-off troops such as Camp Group Piper in the north of the Glaze like the Allies had done with Bastogne? The battle does see isolated groups of Germans being surrounded uh, and there is a thought as to whether some of these could be resupplied by air. And in, in fact, a, a few isolated outposts of Kampfgruppe Piper um, are resupplied, or there is an attempt to resupply them with food, ammunition, and crucially fuel uh, by, the, by air. Uh, and it's really copying what the Allies have done. But you've got to control the skies, and the Germans don't. Uh, you've got to have lots of very good transport aircraft, and the Germans don't. Um, Well-experienced aircrew. Um, and plenty of resources with which to, to resupply your um, your forward lines. Um, and the Germans are short of fuel anyway, so they haven't got much to put into canisters and drop, and they don't have much experience of doing this. The last big German airdrop trying to relieve or help a surrounding garrison was Stalingrad, and it failed miserably. And, and it failed miserably because of the weather conditions, um, Russian air cover, um, and the Germans didn't have enough aircraft. And now we're two years later, the same sort of scenario, and the Germans have even fewer aircraft, much less fuel, poorly trained pilots. So this is never going to help. Um, I think, ironically, I've spoken to one German veteran who remembers this, remembers seeing the Luftwaffe trying to help. Uh, and then within, what, three or four years later, He's in Berlin when the Allies are helping the Berliners in the Berlin airlift. And he remembered thinking, hell, um, if only we could have done this, but helping the Ardennes assault, because it would have made all the difference. So it is. it does revolve not around tactics, not around vision, but resources. And if you've got the Boeing Aircraft Corporation in the United States churning out thousands of C-47 Dakotas uh, and Texas belching out tens of thousands of tons of petroleum spirit. That is always going to win the day. Frequently forgotten about the number of friendly fire incidents that often occurred in the Northwest European theatre during World War II. Was there much experience of this during the Battle of the Bulge? Okay, when we think about friendly fire in the Ardennes uh, assault, um, it's not something that we normally focus on, but it's the sad fact that this has happened all through history in terms of warfare, and it certainly plays a huge role in the Battle of the Bulge. Well, let's look at the Germans first. Um, there are German commandos uh, operating under command of a, a very famous commando leader called Otto Skorzeny. Um, they're putting on American clothing and equipment to sneak through uh, the Allied lines. That creates such confusion uh, and a lot of fright amongst Allied soldiers, um, that they don't even trust their own people 
Um, so there are a lot of Americans, and think of the number of first-generation Americans who've all come from Europe somewhere, who speak with odd guttural accents. There are There's a battalion of Norwegian-Americans who are in the area. There are a lot of former Poles who've now... Uh, who are now naturalised American citizens. So an awful lot of GIs who don't speak English very well and had originated only 20 years earlier from Europe. So they're all in the frame as being potential spies and saboteurs because their English isn't just good enough. Um, so the Americans do shoot first, ask questions later. And we think that, that five or even 10% of the casualties in the Battle of the Bulge suffered by the Allies maybe because of friendly fire incident. Now, the same is true of the Germans, um, partly because they've no idea where their own troops are, so um, people are misidentified. Um, but you've got another problem going on here. It's midwinter. Uh, most people are cold. They don't have any special winterized fighting clothing. So if you find a prisoner who's particularly well togged up uh, or a dead body, um, that's got a spare great coat. Um, what tends to happen is troops of both sides are putting on extra layers of clothing taken from their opponents. So if you're a German soldier, you find an, a, a, another German soldier and he's wearing some bits and pieces of American kit, do you stop, pause, interrogate him, or do you shoot him the moment you see him? And often you shoot first and you then find out he's one of yours, but what he's done is he's borrowed some American clothing because it's better or it's freely available. And the same is happening on the American side. Uh, there are troops who are taking German boots because they're owner waterlogged and are freezing uh, and wearing them. Um, other bits of German equipment as well. And they're caught out at a checkpoint. And before they can even utter uh, an excuse as to why they're, they're wearing German kit, they're shot by jumpy, nervous military policemen or, or other American soldiers. So there's a lot of fratricide going on in a very constrained area because of nervousness, because of all sorts of different circumstances, and soldiers who are new to battle. One thing that is little known about the Battle of the Bulge is the British involvement. What was their contributive role and how many were involved? Well, we do think of the Battle of the Bulge as primarily an American battle, which it was. Um, but several days into the conflict, uh, with Bradley's command post in Luxembourg City and out of contact with the first US Army, which is to the north, and only able to command really Troy Middleton's Eighth Corps and Patton's Third Army. There is a disconnect. Eisenhower identifies it. He warns Bradley that he cannot command the whole of the bulge from Luxembourg. Uh, and Bradley doesn't do anything about it, he doesn't move his headquarters. So Eisenhower, really, really at the behest of his chief of staff, says, OK, the northern half of the battlefield needs to be controlled by someone else. And the only other army group level headquarters available that's in the vicinity is that of Montgomery. And that shouldn't have been a problem, they're allied partners, but Montgomery and Bradley don't get on. And here, again, I'm pushing against the shorthand interpretation of the Second World War, which is that Montgomery and Patton don't get on. Yes, they have their differences, they're different people. 
the real area of controversy is between the two army group commanders, Patton and Montgomery, and that's where the real enmity is. And the Eisenhower-Bradley friendship is very strong. They've, shit, they've been roommates at West Point in 1915. Very, very close. They're together for that meeting on the 16th of December, the first day of the battle, through sheer good fortune, because they're friends, and they want to spend the evening together, chatting about things. Um, but when it comes to Eisenhower giving command of some of Bradley's forces to Montgomery, their friendship is never as close, and Bradley never quite forgives Eisenhower. Um, and that's purely on personal reasons. Professionally, Eisenhower makes exactly the right call, and that is acknowledged by many of the American commanders who worked under Montgomery. So there is a sort of anti-Brit thing going, going on, because Montgomery, I will be the first to admit, is the most impossible person um, to work under. Um, I've written a biography of him, um, and uh, even his own subordinates who are Brits found him very, very challenging. Um, and I'm not sure whether a modern politician would put a Montgomery character like that in front of a, a, a large army today. But back in 1944, he's the best the British have. Uh, and he's thoroughly professional in that he's been fighting the Germans for years and knows what's required. So this is where you have to allow professionalism to override personality. So he's put in command of the northern sector of the Bulge um, and does a very good job, gets on very well with the American Ninth Army commander Simpson um, and delivers really what's exactly required. There is a disconnect because um, uh, he's slower than some American commanders would wish, particularly George Patton, um, but he's slow because he's safe. Now, that's an area that we can um, uh, we can debate and, and, and criticise him uh, for, uh, and that's generally a criticism levelled at the Brits. You are slow. You tend to stop and make cups of tea uh, instead of advancing any quicker. Um, but generally, this is a coalition battle that works better than we might expect. And what we find is there are more Brits on the battlefield. That's not just Montgomery in his headquarters. It's also 30 Corps, led by another British general, Brian Horrocks. Uh, and they're warned off uh, by Eisenhower as soon as the battle begins. And what they can do, it, it, uh, and it was always perceived that they could do, is play a useful role in, in uh, first of all, providing a backstop along the River Meuse. And then later on, when you need fresh combat troops to then occupy and squeeze the Germans out of the Battle of the Bulge. It's a bit like putting pressure on both sides of a tube of toothpaste. Um, you want to send the toothpaste back over the Rhine and away from the Allied front line. Um, then 30 Corps are going to be part of that pressure. Has this role of British involvement in public perception been made greater or lesser by the Americans, and I guess in particular Montgomery and Churchill, with the fallout from Monty's January conference. Towards the end of the battle, but before it finishes, Montgomery decides to make a press conference uh, and talks about how well the Americans have done, but also starts to talk about the Brit British contribution as well, and gives the impression that there are far more British troops involved than was actually the case, and that therefore that this reflects well on him and his generalship. 
and he talks about, well, this is the trickiest battle I think I've ever been involved in. It's not his battle. Uh, and there's a sort of sneering condescension which some Americans detect in Montgomery's words and manner, which I think are there. It's all very unfortunate. And Churchill himself, in the House of Commons a few days later, talks about how magnificent the Americans have been, and then goes on to say, and we must take care not to uh, give ourselves more glory than we are due, and that for every 20 Americans in the Ardennes, there's been one Britain fighting alongside them. And that is code for a slap down to, to, to Bernard Montgomery. So Churchill has got a very, very realistic sense of the force ratios and numbers. But from our own point of view in the United Kingdom, we shouldn't let that override the fact that there is a significant British contribution towards the end. It's far fewer in terms of numbers and the number of fighting units and divisions than the, American than the Americans deploy. Um, it's predominantly an American battle and an American campaign, but there is a British angle. Um, there's also a British angle, of course, in the air. And if we agree that air power ultimately is going to be decisive, uh, then the Royal Air Force are a major component of that. So without wishing to take any of the credit due to American ground forces, um, we can hold our head up high in the United Kingdom and say that both our ground forces and air, air forces played a role uh, in the Battle of the Bulge, which is important. And I think that's what good coalitions are all about. Coalitions are the keystone of modern warfare, whether we're talking Iraq, Afghanistan or wherever. But they began in the Second World War. And I think part of the reason why our soldiers work so well together today is because they've done it in the past and they've inherited that tradition and that heritage. So I think it's important to emphasise that we worked well in a coalition in the Ardennes, perhaps better than any other theatre. Uh, and whilst it's a predominantly American battle, both sides can take something positive away from it that enables them generations later to still operate successfully together in conditions of completely mutual trust. A particularly fascinating aspect of the Ardennes offensive is that it sees the last drop of Germany's elite paratroopers, the Fallschirmjägers, during World War II. What were the objectives of this mission and how did events unfold for those men involved? The Germans do have another airborne operation, uh, which is to deposit large numbers of paratroops in advance of their ground formations. Uh, and that is a very inspired idea. Um, this late on in the war, the Germans don't have enough transport aircraft, have very few paratroopers who've jumped before. Most of them are on the Eastern Front or dead. Uh, and very few aircrew who are trained to work with paratroopers. You've got to fly low and level for long periods of time to drop your people accurately in place. Unfortunately, the plan is too ambitious. And so what we end up with is a smaller group who are going to be dropped in front of the, the northern shoulder uh, of the, the SS route. And their job will be to secure um, crossroads and, and things like that. Um, so actually, from being a sort of war winning idea, um, their role gets diminished on grounds of resources. And actually, what ends up is the paratroopers end up being dropped uh, in poor weather conditions, scattered all over the place, and contribute nothing to the battle. Uh, so they really shouldn't have been used at all. 
Um, their commander, who's a, a, a very interesting individual uh, called Friedrich von der Heidt, unfortunately for him, is a distant cousin of Klaus von Stauffenberg. Um, so whereas the logic would be to cancel the mission, as he's a relative of a German traitor, is so anxious to prove his own worth and not have an interview in Berlin without coffee with the Gestapo, he really pushes hard for the paratroopers to be dropped, and so they are. But there's a huge disconnect between what they're expected to do and what they can deliver, uh, and eventually they're, they're rounded up, having made no contribution to the battle in military terms, but in psychological terms, every American has heard of paratroopers being dropped behind him, so a huge number of American resources are tied up looking for paratroopers who almost always don't exist. The proof of the pudding is that the aircrew are so inexperienced that more than one plane ends up dropping their paratroopers into battle over Bonn because they've completely misidentified and, and, and uh, the, uh, where they're going and their navigation is appalled. And it just underlines the capability of the German Air Force at this stage uh, at the end of the Second World War. It's not up to the job. One of the specialist operations that was launched to help the force in the north was Operation Grief. Um, how did events transpire with this operation? The Germans come up with all sorts of brilliant tangential operations to help uh, the bulge attack, and whether it's prisoners of war in England, whether it's paratrooper attacks. Um, the one that's best known is of German commandos putting on American units um, to go through the lines and cause confusion. Um, Oddly, this is one of the very first times in the Second World War that Germans deploy what today we would call special forces. Now, this is very much the flavour of modern warfare. Go behind the enemy lines and cause confusion. It hardly ever happens in the Second World War, which is, is bizarre. Um, and there are plenty of opportunities for this sort of activity to take place. But, and I think, because Hitler directs his own army so closely so directly he's very much a conventional warfare individual who served in the trenches in the first world war and is not good at thinking outside the box and by the winter of 1944 is suspicious of anyone who comes up with radical ideas like that however he can control this because if all the commandos are ss the one thing they're not going to do is go through the lines and then surrender and that must have been his great worry so this is why the commandos are all SS and command uh, and run by Hitler's favourite uh, SS Lieutenant Colonel Otto Skulzani. Now, it doesn't deliver much in military terms. What it does do is sow a lot of confusion, um, because the moment the rumours start going round of uh, Germans wearing American uniforms behind the lines, then you're not going to trust anyone wearing a, a, an American uniform. Uh, and so it puts grit in the American machine in terms of uh, everyone you see, you start asking them social questions about life in the United States. It's not enough to say, show me your ID, because you don't trust someone else in an American uniform. You need to know uh, questions about social life in the United States. What's the capital of this state? Details about the, the lives of Hollywood film stars or sports players, uh, who plays for this team, what team won the, the league last year, and so on. The sort of questions that Germans masquerading as Americans 
probably wouldn't be able to answer. And one of the guys who has to drive round between the lines because he's a liaison officer of Montgomery's uh, is a lieutenant colonel of Montgomery's staff called David Niven, who's also a film star. Now, by bizarre circumstance, so is his driver, a future film star, he's Peter Ustinov. And the pair are driving behind the lines, they're not attached to any formation, constantly quizzed by the Americans, what's this state, who's this film star? And David Niven would just sort of say, I'm terribly sorry, I haven't a clue. But I do recall in 1940, I made a movie with Ginger Rogers and they recognise him and they love him. But for every time David Niven gets through any kind of checkpoint like that, there are going to be a lot of Americans who, for genuine reasons, haven't the faintest idea which capital um, is of which state uh, or who Mickey Mouse was married to or, or who won the baseball league last year. Uh, and it, a hesitation is an invitation to a bullet. And that's crucial. So at the very least, the German commandos slow the whole Allied machinery down. Uh, and in extremis, a lot of good Americans are killed for no good reason at all. Now, when rumour goes round behind the lines that uh, someone who looks like Montgomery is driving around in a staff car, uh, and Montgomery's car is held up, and Montgomery says to his driver, ignore them, carry on, and his tyres are shot out, Bradley is actually rather pleased by that. But, it, 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 you know, the, there is a detrimental effect. Uh, and so we can say that Scorzani's greatest contribution to the Battle of the Bulge, but it, it's so well known about, is this idea of, of special forces going through the lines and the confusion they cause. I think it's significant, and why perhaps it's so well talked about, is it's really the first time the Germans do this. And you can imagine many other occasions where they might have tried to do this and that might have yielded great results. So this is the first time. Um, and now no modern army would think of operating without undertaking this kind of tactic. A lot is made about the psychological impact of the tigers, and particularly the king tiger, given its colossal size. What sort of role did it play in the Ardennes offensive? And were many of these machines involved during the campaign? How did they perform? When we think of the range and variety of armoured vehicles that both sides employ in the Battle of the Bulge, it's a model maker's paradise. And a significant number of those models that we've all assembled are King Tigers, which is bizarre because they are employed in almost the least numbers of any kind of German armoured vehicle. But we focus on them because of their huge size. King Tigers have arrived on the 1944 battlefield because of Hitler's personal mentality. He doesn't understand armoured vehicles at all, but it's his personal belief that what tanks should really be when Germany's on the defensive is a mobile pillbox. And therefore, what you don't need is great speed. You don't need huge fuel tanks. What you need is a lot of defensive armour and a very powerful gun. And if you compare German tanks of 1944 with those of 1940, the tanks that enabled the Blitzkrieg can all travel at very high speeds and have got big fuel tanks to allow them to go a long range. If you look at 1944, it's exactly the opposite. Their speeds are low, um, the engines guzzle fuel, uh, and they don't have a huge fuel capacity. Um, and that's because Germany's on the defensive. But the Battle of the Bulge is about Germany going on 
on the offensive all over again. So Hitler now decrees that his mobile pillboxes are going to be in the advance and attacking with the Ardennes. The reality of the bulge uh, is that the vast majority of tanks used are Panzer Mark IVs or Stugs, which is the little um, low-profile uh, assault gun, uh, and not the King Tiger. But we, we get attracted and focused and sidetracked by the, the King Tiger because of its dimensions, um, and it's an unproven piece of technology. Um, the engine is underpowered uh, and ill-developed for a tank of that weight. Um, the Ardennes is the least suitable terrain in which to deploy it. Why? Well, most, most bridges will quite happily accommodate an armoured vehicle of, say, up to 40 tonnes. Um, a King Tiger is closer to 70. Um, it's too wide and too heavy for most roads. It can't ford most um, uh, rivers. Uh, so it's entirely the wrong vehicle, plus the fact it guzzles fuel. Um, from the air, they act as bullet magnets. You're going to go for the biggest armoured vehicle you can find. Uh, so it's, it's inappropriate for the campaign. Uh, Piper, notably, uh, running his camp group in the north, puts them at the back because they are the slowest um, and therefore the most inconvenient. And it's significant that by the, the end of the campaign, um, the Germans have lost more Tiger tanks to mechanical breakdown than they have to combat. But that's the mentality of the German armed forces and, and, and Hitler. What he likes is big, showy, high-value items, but they're not the pieces of equipment that get the battle done. So if we start thinking of heavy German tanks like the Tiger II, we're heading off in the wrong direction because they make only a limited contribution to the battle, um, and they're only present in small numbers in it. I suppose the one field that we can talk about them in is their psychological value to the Germans. They are intimidating to a GI hunkered down in a small uh, foxhole uh, with this huge thing sort of lumbering towards him. But the reality is, if you look at all the photographs, they stay on the roads. They're too heavy to go off road, certainly in the wintry conditions and the terrain of the Ardennes. They have a tiny practical value, and therefore I find it really puzzling why we get so hung up on King Tigers when they play such a really such a small role in the battle. Thank you to Peter for kindly speaking with us. Also, a big thank you to you for listening. We'll be sitting down with Peter hopefully again very shortly to discuss even more about the Battle of Bulge. So if you have any questions you'd like to ask him about this, then please do feel free to drop us an email at lawrenceatworldwatersnation.com or ross at Thank you.